Okay, following on from the uh, medicine section, we're going to look a bit more at the cause of disease in the Renaissance period. This is a period where people find quite difficult, especially because there's very little that changes in terms of the practice of medicine. But the Renaissance was a time in which new ideas came to the forefront of medical thinking, because we now develop a period in the Renaissance time in which people wanted to learn more, known as humanism, the love of learning. The problem was that in times of crisis, people would go back to their old way of thinking. So, for example, the church and the belief of God causing disease. But the cause of disease did develop significantly throughout the Renaissance period. So I'm going to go through a few ideas that people began to think of and began to develop. However, you've got to understand that these ideas did not come into practice. The Renaissance period was an idea as a, was a period in which there were lots of ideas but people didn't go ahead with them because of the fear of going against Galen. Because the church did lose influence, but they didn't lose it until quite late on in the in this period. So some examples of people that came up with radical ideas. So you had an individual called Paracelsus. He began to consider the inaccuracies of the theory of the four humours. He believed that disease was something separate from the body, which needed to be attacked. Now Paracelsus began to think of new chemical treatments, Now this links into the treatment section, but that's because he thought that each symptom that a patient had needed to be dealt with as one. There was also another individual called Fracastoro who believed that disease was caused by seeds that spread in the air. This was in 1546. Now this is very similar to the concept of germs, but it wasn't germ theory yet. It was an idea that it wasn't miasma causing disease, it was just seeds in the air. Now, some of the most important individuals of this time period that changed the outlook on the cause of disease were Vesalius, Harvey and Sydenham. They single-handedly began to get people to think for themselves, but also think about new concepts. Now, this is because the church lost a lot of power in this time, so people had more ways of trying to develop their way of thinking. For example... Dissection wasn't frowned upon as much as it was in the medieval period. And the first ind individual to look at in a bit of detail is Vesalius. Now you've got to understand that Vesalius began to disprove the idea of the ideas of Galen. Now we remember this number quite regularly. Vesalius disproved three hundred of Galen's ideas. Now the way in which he was able to do this was firstly carry out dissections. So he carried out a large number of dissections thanks to local courts who allowed him to use the bodies of executed criminals. And he also encouraged people to base their work on dissection rather than believing in old books. Because the old books, as we've previously mentioned, were dominated by the church's belief. Now, Vesalius based a lot of his ideas on the human body. And as previously mentioned, he found 300 mistakes in Galen's work. Now... You're not expected to know all of them for the exam, but some of the more common ones were that the human jawbone was one part, not two. And that, for example, men didn't have one fewer pair of ribs than women. And the fact that the liver didn't produce blood. Now, the way in which Vesalius spread his ideas were through two books. The second one's more famous than the first due to the impact that it had. But the first book that Vesalius produced was six anatomical tables, which showed different in-depth diagrams of 
the human body which were labelled in a various different languages, for example Latin, Greek, Hebrew and Arabic. The second more famous book was written and produced in 1543, which was known as Fabric of the Human Body. Now this book, again, had detailed diagrams of the human body. This was going to allow people to be able to look at the cause of disease in a bit more detail. One of the most key turning points for this book was that students at university, people who were training to be physicians, would use Vesalius's book as fugitive sheets. This meant it was cheaper and more accessible for students to see the ideas that Vesalius was producing. However, the whole idea of going against Galen was too much for some, ra for some sort of conservative physicians. A lot of people wanted to stay traditional to the ideas that they'd been using for hundreds of years. Therefore, Vesalius's ideas were sort of put in practice a lot later on in the Renaissance period. However, if we're going to judge Vesalius's overall inspiration, he did inspire future physicians to study the anatomy and not just accept what they've been told. So dissection became a big part of study in medicine and not just for surgeons. Vesalius's work was heavily copied and used by the printing press so it could spread further. And it also helped because in the future, other people who looked at Vesalius's work were able to correct his mistakes. Vesalius wasn't right 100%. But what he did do was he began to start to get people to think outside of Galen's beliefs that they thought about constantly in the medieval period. The next individual who caused some aspect of change in the idea of the cause of disease a lot later on in the Renaissance period was Thomas Sydenham. He was nicknamed the English Hippocrates because he began to consider alternative reasons for the cause of disease outside of the theory of the four humours. Now, Sydenham had more of an emphasis on noting down the symptoms of the patient, making sure they had a full history of their health so that the diagnosis could be placed more effectively. Now, Sydenham compared disease a lot like to plants, and it basically meant that they could be organised into different groups. So instead of looking at each and every symptom, Sydenham believed that it could be grouped. So it went against the idea of the four humours. He believed that disease was personal to the patient instead of it being overly linked to the stars, planets, weather, etc. He caused progress in medicine by making detailed descriptions of many illnesses, including the first description of scarlet fever. He also believed in allowing the body to fight the illness on its own, rather than bleeding or purging. So Sydenham was trying to think outside of the box in terms of how we deal with illness, but also what caused it. And he was going away from that idea that the four humours was the main cause of disease. He believed in observing his patients, writing down the symptoms, grouping them and treating them. Therefore, they're not going to have separate treatments for an array of different problems. Now, the last person that we could consider in terms of the cause of disease in the Renaissance period is William Harvey. Now, he purely focused on the concept of circulation of the blo of blood in the body. And there were loads of theories that he disproved, not just Galen's, but also Vesalius's. So the first one, Vesalius had a theory that veins contained valves, proving that the blood in them flowed towards the heart. 
That was the theory that Vesalius came up. Now, William Harvey proved this by using dissections. So when he tried to pump blood the other way through the veins in the body, it didn't work. Not just that, but Harvey also used Galen's ideas and he tried to disprove them. So, for example, Galen was incorrect in believing that the blood was made in the liver. Galen believed that the blood was created in the liver after people ate, it flowed through the body and it was used up as energy. Now, Harvey proved that that was totally incorrect. And if it was correct, you would need 1,800 litres of blood to survive. Now, bear in mind our body is made up of around 5 litres. It showed that William Harvey proved that Galen was terribly incorrect with this. Another discovery that Harvey proved was about blood circulation. Now, he came up with the discovery and proved that arteries and veins were linked together in one system. Now, he did this by cutting open cold-blooded animals who have a much slower heartbeat to observe the movement of blood while they were still alive. And he also tied a cord around his arm to cut off blood flow in an artery leading up the arm. Now, this showed that when he loosened the cord to allow blood flow through, that the blood kept pumping around the body. But when the cord was around the arm, it was cut off. It was starting to go numb. So basically, it showed that blood was getting in via an artery, but couldn't get out if a vein was blocked. So it showed the circulation was one direction around the body. Therefore, totally disproving Galen's theory and giving us a much better understanding of the human circulation. And the last thing that Harvey disproved was again that Galen was wrong. Harvey disproved Galen's theory that blood flowed from one side of the heart to the other through invisible pores in the heart wall. And he also disproved Galen's theory that whilst the veins carried both blood and the pneuma was picked up in the lungs. So basically, he proved that it wasn't the soul pumping blood around the body. Okay, He linked it to the mechanical pump that fire engines were using at the time. And this showed us that blood was going round in one direction with veins and arteries, and it wasn't these invisible pores that he mentioned. This again causes significant progress, because as we understand more about the blood circulation system, we can start understanding more about the importance of the heart in this. Therefore, the impact of Harvey. Many people began to consider his book that he wrote, so it was called An Anatomical Account of the Motion of the Heart, as the beginning of modern physiology. His work encouraged other scientists to experiment on actual bodies. A bit like Vesalius, it was encouraged to actually dissect humans. This was going to be the only way that people were going to make an advancement in the cause of disease. However, there were a few issues to Harvey. So, for example, Harvey didn't consider himself to be a modern scientist. Uh, he basically believed that the soul was responsible for how our body worked. So he did have some links back to that religious aspect. But also, understanding the circulation of the blood didn't really have any practical use in medical treatment. A lot of doctors ignored him and even criticised him. And that links back to the fact that Galen's work was used up until 1651. And Harvey's work only really appeared in universities in 1673. So if we're assessing the long-term impact of Harvey, he did have a long-term impact, but in the Renaissance period, it was more the traditional values and attitudes that Galen was the most important individual to follow 
because people didn't want to move away from what they were used to for hundreds of years. Now, the last thing we're going to look at in this podcast is how did the communication of the cause of disease change in the Renaissance period? So what we're going to be looking at here is firstly the printing press. So in 1440, the printing press was created by Johannes Gutenberg. Now, the printing press took a lot of power from the church because previously books were produced by monks in monasteries, handwritten, which meant that ideas couldn't change. Now, the printing press developed the concept of much quicker written communication. It also meant that people's ideas could be spread a lot quicker. It also made the concept of books cheaper. So universities could have more access to a range of education, therefore allowing people to develop their ideas and cause further change. Another reason for communication changing was the, the concept of the Royal Society. Now, the Royal Society was basically a group of scientists that would meet and discuss different experiments in the cause of disease. Now, it was put together in 1665 and was given a royal charter by Charles II, which gave it some element of credibility. Now, the way in which they put their ideas across is that they encourage scientists and doctors to tell them ideas and it will be published in the Philosophical Transactions. The Philosophical Transactions was a journal which is still going today. And it was a basically a journal of ideas that people could read, which would be translated by the philosophical transactions into simple English. This meant that more people could read it and it wouldn't just be accessed by sort of higher up, higher up individuals as it wasn't just written in Latin. Now, the philosophical transaction and the Royal Society's motto was take nobody's word for it. Now, this basically means you don't listen to anyone until it's proven which gave more focus on people experimenting, proving, disproving and improving overall people's ideas, which means they can come to more progress in the concept of the cause of disease. The Royal Society was a significant turning point and they were used later on, for example, in the role of Edward Jenner when they argued against his vaccination. But the Royal Society began to put some element of scientific proof by having experts discuss with one another. A further reason why you could say communication of cause of disease changed in this time period, as previously mentioned, was the concept of humanism. Now, this meant that people loved learning and they wanted to use old classical texts to be able to discover the truth of everything around them. They wanted to make sure they looked at the works of Galen and they adjusted it to be able to get it right in terms of what was going on at the time. Now, this links to the concept that the church was losing a lot of power in this time period, especially following Henry VIII dissolving the monasteries and Henry VIII creating his own Church of England. This meant that people had more power to be able to present their ideas. They wanted to learn. They wanted to find out more. This, alongside the printing press and the Royal Society, along with the work of Vesalius, Harvey and Sydenham, caused some elements of progress in the Renaissance period. But what must be understood, and the key thing about this aspect of the course, is there were lots and lots of ideas, but the practice was very, very limited. And until the practice was put into the mainstream of medicine, nothing would change. Not as long as 
people were held back by their traditional beliefs of the medieval period. So remember, in an exam, if you've got anything about the Renaissance period, there is progress, but only in ideas, not so much in practice. And that will sum it up quite nicely to be able to put a good answer across in the exam. Right, so this podcast is going to take into consideration the Renaissance period. Following on from what we looked at in terms of the cause of disease, this one is going to focus on the treatment and prevention. Now, because we're looking at another time period, you must understand that in the exam, it could ask you to look at the similarities or differences in a time period. So I'm going to go through the treatment and throughout I will talk about what is similar from the medieval period to what is different. Now, the first similarity in terms of treatment is that there was still a big belief in balancing the humours based on Hippocrates' idea of the theory of the four humours and Galen's idea on a theory of opposites. Now, there were still the similar treatments. So, for example, bleeding, purging and sweating were all still ways to rebalance your humours and they were used throughout the Renaissance period. A new type of treatment that would be used in this period was something called transference. Now, this basically meant that people believed you could transfer an illness or disease into something else. For example, people believed that if you rubbed a object on a boil, for example, if you had the plague, then it would transfer into the object. Many people used animals in this case. So during the Great Great Plague, people would use chickens, rub them on the boil, and hope that it transferred to the animal. Another similarity that would happen in the Renaissance period in terms of treatment was herbal remedies. They would still continue to be used by the apothecaries. However, they did change slightly. So between the Renaissance period, 1500-1700, remedies were chosen because of their colour or shape. So for example, smallpox in the Renaissance period was a disease that linked to red because of the red spot and rashes that people got. So people would try and cure this with red cures. For example, drinking red wine, eating red foods and wearing red clothes. Apothecaries also developed because of new plants and remedies that started to appear from the new world. Now, this allowed for new remedies to be created because of herbs that came into England. So, for example, sarsaparilla came from the new world. And this was used to treat the great pox. And Ipanacho from Brazil, which was later known as Ipecac. And that was used for dysentery. So different types of herbs were used and this would help develop the concept of apothecary treatments. One of the biggest changes in regards to the apothecaries were the use of chemicals. And this was known as alchemy. This was the first time in history in which we could start to see chemistry being used in people's treatments, which would later go on to form chemical and bacterial antibiotics. So people began to look for chemical cures of disease, and instead of relying on herbs and bloodletting, they used books such as the Pharmacopoeia Londinensis, which was published in 1618, which had a manual of remedies. And among these, among this book, there were around 2,140 remedies and there were 120 chemical remedies. Now, this shows a huge change in the thinking of treatment in regards to apothecaries. 
So one of the most well, one of the most well used chemicals was something called antimony. And this was used in small doses to promote sweating, but there was a problem with antimony that in large doses it could kill you. Now, the individuals that we discussed in the first podcast with medieval treatment were still used in the Renaissance period, but there were some subtle changes. So, for example, apothecaries. They continued to mix remedies, as I've just said, and surgeons carried out simple operations. So, in the, peri- in the medieval period, apothecaries were used in guild systems, which meant they would become masters. But in the Renaissance period, what must be understood is that both apothecaries and surgeons had their educational opportunities increased. So this meant that new sur- because of aspects such as war, new surgery was necessary. And because of the use of chemicals and the training behind it, the advancement of both surgeons and apothecaries became evident during this time period. Not just that, but both surgeons and apothecaries had to have licences in the Renaissance period. There was something that they did not need during the medieval period. Now, in regards to your physicians, they continued to go to university in the Renaissance period, which was common practice. However, courses didn't change massively. There were some new ideas, as previously mentioned, so the concepts of Vesalius, Harvey and Sydenham, but most learning was still done from books and not from dissections. Lectures were dictated in Latin, but as the body began to become more known about and the chemical remedies started to be shared, doctors were trying to challenge the old teachings and investigate for themselves. Now this was basically a turning point in this time period as doctors wanted to start to think of their own ways to deal with medicine. But it was very difficult to dissect bodies. One of the first reasons was is that the church, even though we're losing power, still lingered over the minds of the people in the Renaissance period. But also, it was very difficult to get fresh corpses to dissect. Therefore, it slowed the progress on what physicians could do. And furthermore, universities didn't really have theatres to dissect in because many universities believed that they shouldn't train a physician to dissect. But one more big positive for the physicians in this time period was the fact that they had a lot more access to cheaper medical textbooks. So as the ideas of, say, Vesalius began to come to the forefront of medicine, they were turned into fugitive sheets, And this therefore meant that people were able to learn from them. It was cheaper and it allowed for them to go above and beyond the concept of Galen's ideas. Therefore, this was beginning to gain some sort of traction in this time period, which meant that people could think for themselves, but also try and progress medicine. In regards to hospitals in this time period, you must understand that in the medieval period, hospitals were based on care not treatment this was because god was such a significant treatment within hospitals if people survived it was evidence that god existed now changes began to take place in the early 16th century at the beginning of the renaissance period so whereas before 
people attended hospital for food, shelter and to pray. It be, this time period begins to suggest that people went to hospital to deal with things such as wounds and curable diseases such as fevers and skin conditions. Now the difference in hospitals in this time period was that you could expect to see a few more different things that you wouldn't see in a medieval hospital. So for example, there was a big focus still on a good diet. Physicians were seen in hospitals a lot more. So hospitals had contracts with doctors who would visit patients twice a day to observe their symptoms and prescribe treatments. And medication. Hospitals started to have their own pharmacies and apothecaries on site which would mix the remedies. Now one of the most significant changes in hospitals in this time period is that in 1536 Henry VIII closed down the monasteries. This meant that hospital care reduced because most of the hospital care happened in monasteries. Therefore this had a significant impact on the amount of people that could be treated. And another change in hospital care in this period was that hospitals would have their own wards for certain diseases. An example of this were pest houses, plague houses, basically meaning that hospitals would try to prevent certain diseases from spreading by keeping people in the same area who had conditions. So if you had the plague, you would be kept with other plague victims, therefore treating them effectively while also preventing a spread of an epidemic. Now that's all the concept of the treatment, looking at the medics and how people thought they should effectively be treated. The last few minutes is going to be on prevention. Now in the Renaissance period, preventing disease was still seen as the best way of not dying, obviously. Now because treatment wasn't as effective as people would hoped, there was no certainty people would recover. So the key thing was, let's not get sick. So firstly, people still believe that you could prevent being sick by practicing moderation. So moderate exercise, moderate diet, just making sure that you looked after yourself. And that's it's still linked in to the practicing of the regimen sanitatus. But as the Renaissance period went on, avoidance methods became more important. So for example, if you were living in an area that had a epidemic, Instead of following the regimen sanitatis, people would just look at moving away. Cleanliness was also really important still. Both the home and the body needed to be kept clean and free from bad smells, which wards off miasma. But in the Renaissance period, public bathing became a lot less fashionable. This is because of the arrival of syphilis. Now for the people that visited the bathhouses, syphilis spread incredibly quickly and Henry VIII had to close them down in the early 16th century. Now realistically the reason why these that why syphilis spread so quickly in the bathhouses is because of their sort of dual role. They weren't just an area where people would go to public bath, they were also brothels because syphilis is sexually transmitted. So even, this just goes back to the concept that people didn't have a full understanding of what caused the disease therefore they closed them down which could have made the situation a lot worse. Um, another thing that people really should have done a bit more, which they didn't at this stage, was basically clean themselves down a bit more away from the public baths, but also change their clothes regularly. This was practice that didn't really happen. So on the whole, 
in terms of prevention, it was still very similar. There was another idea that weather conditions, spreading disease, I mean, that became more popular. So thermometers were used to look at the different weather conditions and people were trying to link the weather to preventing illness. And a big step forward at this stage is that some local councils began to get more involved in cleaning towns. So if towns didn't clean their area, they were fined. People were forced to clean the towns as a part of a punishment. So if you're a criminal and also projects were set up to drain swamps and bogs. So trying to remove sewage as much as possible. Even though this isn't official public health, it was the start of some element of public health, which we go on to in the industrial period in a lot more detail. So that's an overview. Was there progress to an extent? But it is the Renaissance period. The Renaissance period, lots and lots of new sort of ideas, but the practice was very limited.